Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. How many of you have ever experienced a challenge in life? One of you, a couple up over here. So the rest of you are just super blessed to have never had any challenges in life. And I want to meet with you and talk with you about that when you get a chance. Most of us, honestly, have had super duper big challenges, small challenges, medium challenges. We, we have challenges that we face sometimes on a daily basis, don't we? Sometimes it's a challenge to getting to work. Sometimes it's a challenge of waking up in the morning. Sometimes it's a challenge just to get out the door. We start a new series this morning as we continue along in our reading program for this year. We've been going through the Bible together as a church, and you should be somewhere around Leviticus and Numbers at this point if you're sticking with it. And uh, if you've gotten behind, that's okay. Spend a whole day and catch up. I'm sure you could just take off and do that, right? I didn't think so. But try as best you can to catch up. We are actually going to be looking at Numbers chapter 13 today. Numbers is entitled Numbers because it's about the numbers of people in their different tribal nations of Israel. There are 12 tribes that we are very familiar with. And of those 12 tribes, basically the book of Numbers is counting the people within each tribe. There are still... However, nuggets of fun material in there that are important for you to go through. So numbers can be just about as challenging to read as Leviticus when you start to go through it. But I tell you, it's worth its time. So Numbers chapter 13 is where we'll be today. I'll give you a chance to turn there. I'll be preaching from the New Living Testament today. Today, uh, as we start this new series for the month of February, we're going to be looking at joy in the wilderness Uh, The Israelites spent some time in the wilderness. As a matter of fact, they spent about 40 years in the wilderness. They weren't supposed to spend 40 years in the wilderness. God didn't do all the plagues in Egypt and help Moses lead the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into the Sinai Peninsula in order to have them stay there for 40 years. Actually, they were only supposed to be there for a few months, maybe a little over a year before they were to go and inhabit the promised land, which would be where modern-day Israel is today. Except, in Numbers chapter 13, something went really sour. And what should have been no more than a year in the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula ended up being 40 years. So what does life look like in the wilderness? Now, we can use this metaphorically. Some of you may have never wandered in a Sinai Peninsula for 40 years. But maybe in your personal life, your emotional life, in your work life, or in your family life, you feel like you're in the middle of a desert or a wilderness, that only the things that grow out there are like weeds and scrub brush, and it's a rough, hard life, and it's not fun to be there. But there's something about wilderness experiences that have a tendency to strengthen us. Can you find joy in the wilderness? I think you can. 
There's a, a few quotes that I found this morning, actually not quotes, but just some stories about people that face some pretty major challenges in life. And instead of looking at the challenge as an impossibility, they saw that challenge as something to overcome. So let's look at a couple of those. How many of you have ever heard of John Fulton? You may not have a clue who that is. So let me tell you a little bit about him. John Fulton was run over by a car by the age of, at the age of three. What more than likely would have killed him left him pretty severely, you know, incapacitated. He suffered crushed hips, broken ribs, a fractured skull, and compound fractures to his legs. And it didn't look like he was going to live for a while. But he would not give up. That little three-year-old would not give up his own little life. In fact, he later ran the half mile in less than two minutes. Can you believe that? Now, it's an older character. You look up John, John Fulton, Johnny Fulton, and find out who he is. Ran the half mile in less than two minutes. What about Walt Davis? He was totally paralyzed by polio when he was nine years old, but he didn't give up. He became the Olympic high jump champion in 1952, paralyzed at age nine by polio. What about Shelley Mann? She was paralyzed by polio when she was five years old, but she wouldn't give up. She eventually claimed eight different swimming records for the United States and won the gold medal in 1956 Olympics in Melbourne, Australia. In 1938, Karoli Takaks, I believe is how you spell that or pronounce that, T-A-K-A-C-S, is a member of Hungary's world champion pistol shooting team and the sergeant in the army. They, uh, he lost his right hand when a grenade he was holding exploded. But Takax would not give up. He learned to shoot left-handed and won gold medals in the 1948 and 1952 Olympics. All right, here's one that you might have heard of, Lou Gehrig. Have you ever heard of Lou Gehrig? It's where we get the Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. Listen to Lou Gehrig's story. He was a clumsy ball player that the boys in his neighborhood would not let play on their team. But he was committed. He didn't give up. He didn't take no for an answer. Eventually, his name was entered into the Baseball Hall of Fame. This clumsy little kid who couldn't play worth a darn when he was young. Some of the most difficult and challenging times in life are what we often call wilderness experiences. And some of you may be even going through a wilderness experience right now. You're saying, the thing I'm facing in life looks too challenging, too daunting to overcome. It's way too difficult. Nobody knows the challenge that I face right now. And actually, most people probably have no clue what you're facing even if you've told them about it. But there is a person who knows the challenges you face, who's been there, done that, and knows the great challenge of life is he faced the cross. His name is Jesus. What would it be like if Jesus decided halfway through the walk to Calvary with a cross on his back, having been beaten, saying, I give up, this isn't worth it. I mean, they're spitting at me, they're mocking me. I've just been completely 
humiliated and beat, I'm, I'm on my way to my death, this isn't worth it. What would have happened if he decided the challenge of the cross was too much to bear for you and me? That wouldn't be good, would it? Thank God, literally, he didn't give up. But instead, he endured the cross, suffering its shame. And actually, he counted it joy to face the cross, we are told, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. We get to Numbers chapter 13, and we find this group of people called the Israelites having come out of the wilderness, or excuse me, come out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They're now in Sinai, and they've been given the Ten Commandments by God from Mount Sinai to Moses. They're on the tablets. We've gone through all of this up to this point, and now they're right on the edge of the promised land. They would have taken the route that Joshua would eventually take after 40 years, around the Dead Sea and through the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And here they are, looking out, seeing this beautiful piece of land, almost like a fertile crescent. And Moses is finally now at the place where God had promised him he would lead them. You go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3 and the calling of Moses. This was a challenge in and of itself. God trying to convince Moses that he was going to use him to set the captives free in, Israel, or in Egypt. And you see about five different times Moses is saying, I'm not your guy. I'm not your guy. I'm not the one to do this. Don't pick me. I mean, five different times. God is patient. I give, I give three times for my kids to do something. Can you imagine five times? right? That's how that works. And God says, oh, I'm so frustrated with you. Take your brother Aaron. And he finally consents and goes, okay? And now they've actually gotten to this point. They're on the precipice or the edge of the promised land. And Moses decides to do something. He says, I want to take 12 of you, one from each of the tribes, and I want you to go into the land. They spent about 40 days in the land, looking at the produce, checking out the land, checking out the people that were there, and they come back with a report. Let's pick up their story. Numbers chapter 13, starting with verse 1. And now the Lord said to Moses, send out men to explore the land of Canaan, the land I'm giving to the Israelites. Send, the, uh, send one leader from each of the 12 ancestral tribes. Where do the 12 ancestral tribes come from? You may not know the Bible really well. I'll give you a little, little snippet real quick. If you go all the way back to Genesis, you have a guy by the name of Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, he's called by God to become a great nation. Abraham and Sarah couldn't have a baby until they were about in their late 90s, early 100s. And then they have a child by the name of Isaac. Isaac, their promised child, who they never thought they could have, imagine having a baby at 99, um, actually has two sons. They're twins, they're fraternal, Esau and Jacob. Jacob tricks his brother Esau not only out of the birthright, because Esau was the firstborn of the twins, and he tricks him out of the blessing of the father. And so now Jacob is having to run for his life. He leaves town because Esau wants to kill him. Jacob gets older, and he now has the blessing from God to carry on the covenant that God had given Abraham, his grandfather. And Jacob ends up having a wife by the name of Rachel, but not before he's tricked by his uncle Laban to marry his other daughter, Leah, 
And so Leah and Rachel are now married to Jacob, and then they start, Jacob starts having kids with Leah. Rachel can't have kids because Rachel's his favorite. He's who she wanted, she's who he wanted to marry in the first place. And then, um, and so Rachel gives Jacob his servant girl to sleep with so that by proxy, her, her servant girl can have kids for her. And then, and then Leah stops having kids and she gives her servant girl to Jacob. Now imagine Jacob's got four women he's sleeping with. Sounds like a mess. Some of you guys may think, oh, that's awesome. You read the story of Jacob and I'm telling you, it's bad news. Because he's caught not in a love triangle, it's like a quadrangle or, or pentagrangle or whatever. It's bad news. Because they're pitting one another against each other and they're using him as just a fresh piece of meat. I'm serious, that's how it works, check it out. But through those four different women, guess how many boys Jacob has? Twelve! Those 12 kids would become the nations that would comprise the nation of Israel, okay? Those 12 tribes. Now, flash forward to Numbers chapter 13. I'll just give you a little backstory on that. The 12 tribes have grown into well over a million people. They're in the Sinai Peninsula in the wilderness, working their way around to the edge of the promised land. And God says to Moses, take one leader from each tribe to go scout out the land. And this is the breakdown of that land. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He sent 12 men out, all tribe leaders from Israel, from their camp in the wilderness of Paran. These were the tribes and the names of their leaders. Now, if I butcher these names, which I shouldn't, but I'm gonna to try to not do that, please forgive me. Reuben was the, the tribe. Shemua, son of Zakur, went on behalf of Reuben. Simeon, Shaphat, son of Har Hori. Judah, Caleb, son of Jephunneh. Issachar, Igal, son of Joseph. Ephraim, Hosea, son of Nun, and stop right there. You know who, who Hosea is? Joshua. Whenever you see Hosea, that is just the formalized version of Joshua. So we know something about Caleb, we know something about Hosea or Joshua, so that'll come up in a little bit. Benjamin, Palti, son of Raphu. Zebulun, Gadail, son of Zodi, or Sodi. Manasseh, son of Joseph. Gadi, son of Susi, Dan, Amiel, son of Gemali, Asher, Sethur, son of Michael, Naphtali, Nah Nabi, son of Vop Vof Vofsi? Is that how you'd pronounce that? Okay, thank you. Uh, and Gad, Guel, uh, Geul, son of Maki. All right, two. Try naming your kids one of those names. All right. <clears throat> So those are the tribes, those are the leaders from those tribes, and those are the leaders' fathers' names. These are the names of the men Moses sent out to explore the land. Moses called Hosea, or Joshua, son of Nun, by the name of Joshua, right? And Joshua would become basically Moses' right-hand man, his assistant. Joshua was the one that went with Moses up top of Mount Sinai to get the tablets with him. He was the only one that went with him. 
Moses gave these men instructions as he sent them out to explore the land. Go north through the Negev into the hill country, see what the land is like, and find out whether the people living there are strong or weak, are few or many. See what kind of land they live in. Is it good or bad? Do their towns have walls or are they unprotected like open camps? Is the soil fertile or poor? Are there many trees? Do your best to bring back samples of the crops that you see. It happened to be the season for harvest harvesting the first ripe grapes. So, so they went up to explore the land from the wilderness of Zen as far as Rahab near Leboth Hamath. Going north, they passed through the Negev, arrived at Hebron where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Tal Talmai, all the descendants of Anak, lived. The ancient town of Hebron was founded seven years before the Egyptian city of Zoan. When they came to the valley of Eshel, they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes so large that it took two of them to carry on a pole between them. They also brought back samples of the pomegranates and figs. That place is called the valley of Eshel, which means cluster. Because of the cluster of grapes, the Israelite men cut there. After exploring the land for 40 days, and get that, it's about a month and a half, the men returned to Moses, Aaron, and the whole community of Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. They reported to the whole community all that they had seen and showed them the fruit that they'd taken from the land. And this was their report back to Moses. We entered the land that you sent us to explore, and it is indeed this bountiful country. A land flowing with milk and honey. That's just a euphemism or a metaphor. It doesn't mean it's literally flowing with honey and milk. It's a term they would use to say it is amazingly good, all right? So it's a land flowing with milk and honey, and here's the kind of fruit it produces. But the people living there, man, they were powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites, and Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites, they live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, all along the Jordan Valley. But listen to what Caleb says. Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go and take the land at, uh, at once. We can certainly conquer it. But the other man who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. Have you ever faced a bully in school that was much bigger than you? And you were scared out of your wits because you thought, I'm going to be beaten to a pulp. And if I don't get beaten to a pulp, I'm really going to get it bad some way or another from this guy or this girl. Right? This is kind of what they're experiencing right now. They're looking at the people of the land. They're coming back, reporting to Moses, man, the land is awesome, but the people are big and they look mean, all right? So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. How many of them are there out there? Well over a million people. How fast does news travel in your circles? Right? News travels fast. Now, this is before mass media or anything else. They're out in the middle of the wilderness. Guess what? There's no electricity, except static electricity. And I'm sure they were shocking each other all the time. But nevertheless, because it's a wilderness, it's dry. 
Yeah, all right, never mind. But they're out there and they have no form of mass communication. What, what, how, does, how does word travel? Word of mouth. And so the 10 that came back, the 10 spies, start spreading this bad report about the land. Oh, it's, it's great, but there are these people there. We'll, we're just going to get massacred if we go in and try to take the land. If we just start coming in, they're going to kill us all off. Now, imagine you're the one that didn't go into the land, but now you're hearing this report. What are you going to do? What are you going to say? How are you going to feel? Wait a minute. You're telling me we've, we have left everything we've known. We were born and raised in Egypt because they lived there for nearly 450 years. 400 to 450 years. Egypt was all they'd ever known. But they followed this guy Moses from Egypt who promised them that God was leading them to a place where there was a promised land that was bountiful and full and he was going to give it to them. And now here they are and they've got these guys coming back saying, uh, yeah, it is pretty sweet, but we're all going to die. That's great news. You've left everything. You're living in a tent now only to find out you're going to get killed? So the people get ticked off. Listen to the rest that they say. We traveled through the land, explored. Uh, the land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw there were huge. I mean, they weren't just fat. They were tall. Now, the Israelites, most scholars believe, were uh, right about five foot tall. So anybody in the six foot or higher range would have been a giant. But we do know there were people that were even taller than that in the land. Some seven, eight. We get to Goliath and the David narratives of David and Goliath. Some scholars believe he was nine and a half pushing 10 feet tall. I, he probably had a pituitary issue. Who knows? But uh, he was a descendant of Anak, I guess. Uh, the Philistine clan. Sorry. Is that over the line? Anywho, so we even saw giants there, they say, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought too. Now, translation into 21st century uh, America, hey, we felt like bugs, and they were going to squish us. I mean, under their boot, it would, that's what we would have been like to them. That's how we felt to them, and they thought we looked like that too. Oh, look at these little people, little hobbits with hairy feet coming into our land. You know, I mean, that's kind of probably how they felt when they were there, and the people were there like, ooh, you're really little. I'll take you home and cuddle you. I, mean, I don't know what they were doing. But the Israelites didn't want that to happen. I'm sorry, that is my rendition of it. It's not at all what the scripture says. Read it for yourself. What's the key point this morning? <laughs> Joy can only be experienced by those who th see through eyes of faith and possibility. Now, there's a difference between joy and happiness. I mean, they're very close, but joy can happen in spite of your circumstances. Happiness is reliant upon circumstances. That's why the founders of our nation said that a part of our right as, as God's, uh, as uh, being created in the image of God and, and having and being, been endowed by those inalienable rights, it's the pursuit of happiness. He doesn't promise us happiness, right? Our forefathers don't. It's the pursuit of it. But honestly, joy can happen even in the midst of most challenges. And it should. 
For believers in Christ, you may find yourself knocking on sorrow's door, and you can still have a joy unspeakable and full of glory. You can have a peace that passes understanding because you know the immediate situation and challenge you're facing is nothing compared to the glorious riches of Christ Jesus and that someday all of this will be done and we will be with him. So when you're able to look at your challenges as temporary and you're able to press through those challenges because you know Christ is walking with you through them, as Paul, not Paul, as David said in the Psalms, I repeat it all the time, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, David knows he's facing a challenge against Saul who is trying to kill him, which is not a part of today's sermon. But in the midst of running from Saul in the wilderness, because that's where he is, hiding out in caves, around these cliffs, in the mountainous areas, running from Saul, he's writing this Psalm 23 and he says, even when I'm out here and it seems really dark, I won't fear. Why? Because he's got a joy to know that God is God, he is not, and that if he continues to be faithful to God, God's going to see him through it, and actually God's walking with him through it right now. Is that the way you're facing challenges? Is that the way you face challenges? It's not always the way I face challenges. It's easy to feel like you keep, uh, have you ever been to the beach and the, the surf is a little bit more intense at times than others. And you're standing out just where it's about waist or a little bit higher, chest high. And, and these waves are strong and, and they keep knocking you and knocking you and knocking you. And you're like, I just need to get back to safety now. I'm getting drugged on the bottom and sandblasted on the face. I got to get out of here. Have you ever felt like that in life? where you get hit by one wave that you can't withstand and it knocks you down and drags you on the bottom and you get cut up and bruised. And you just in time to stand up and take a gasp of air and then you get hit again and knocked back down and you're like, oh my gosh, how much more can I take? You ever been that way? I have. And you get to the point where sometimes you might even look up to heaven and say, God, I don't even know if you're real. But if you are, where are you in the midst of this? You're going to leave me out here to get beat and dragged? I can't handle any more of this. Help me. See, I think we've all faced challenges like that. We all feel like we get, there are times when we get, get, keep getting hit and keep getting hit and keep getting hit and keep getting hit to the point where we're like, I've had enough. I can take one or two hits at a time, but three, four, five, I can't do this anymore. And see, the difference is the one who has joy in Christ, who knows that these are light and temporary trials, is the one who's able to say, all right, bring it on. I hate this. It stinks that I have to keep going through this. But God, help me to learn something through this process. Help each scar that I acquire to be a reminder of how you've helped me to get up and keep pressing on. So here's... The point this morning, I only have two and we'll get out of here quicker than we did last week. <laughs> so here's the point. Here's one of the points. So the person who believes what God says doesn't see obstacles, they see opportunities. 
10 of the tribes, or 10 of the leaders from the 10 of the tribes came back and said, we can't do this. The challenge is too great. We're never going to be able to overcome the people that live there. We looked at them as giants and they looked at us as grasshoppers and it's going to devour us. The land will devour us. We may be many in number, but man, they've got so much more than we have, except for the fact that those 10 spies neglected to remember that God was on their side. See, even with God on your side, it doesn't mean you're not going to face challenges or tough circumstances, and it doesn't mean you're not going to get a few scrapes and bruises along the way. But see, their hope was in their ability rather than God's ability. Has God ever called you somewhere or you felt this need with inside of you, this prompting that you needed to do something that you knew was worthy and good, but you shrank back from it because the challenge was too great? See, you're looking only through your eyes. Because if God is calling you to it, he's going to equip you for it. And instead of seeing an obstacle, he wants you to see an opportunity. There have been so many times in my life, my wife's life, us as a couple together, we faced challenges together, we faced them separate, we faced them against each other at times. Did you know that? You ever face challenges in your relationships? You see, one of the things that, one of the reasons I think the divorce rate is so high in our culture, can I, can I be honest with you? This isn't in my notes. I'm not going to set my stand aside just yet. One of the reasons the divorce rate is so high, I think, and I'm not saying there aren't legitimate reasons for divorce. Please don't go off somewhere and say, Brandon said that you're going to hell if you divorce. It's not what I'm saying. But I think one of the reasons it is so prevalent and not the exception is because people see the challenge in relationships and they decide, uh, I'm not cut out for this, and they give up. They walk away. You see, Sarah Lee and I have had times in our marriage, and I'm not telling you something she wouldn't tell you. There have been times in our marriage, we, not because of moral failure or anything like that, just because it is so daggone hard at times that we would have said, I'm done. I'm throwing in the towel. I quit. We've been married 20 years. We're in our 21st year. And I know some of you out there have been married 60 years plus. And I bet you have stories that you could tell us that though your undying love for each other has helped to be your mainstay, there were challenges in your marriage that were some of the toughest in life to get through. How about challenges in your relationship with your children or your parents? You ever have challenges in those arenas? It's hard. It's frustrating. And I've seen family members become so estranged from each other. Why? Because they give up. They don't press in. They don't try. Oh, I have tried. You don't know how many times I've tried. How many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Peter says. Should I forgive them seven times, Peter says? Now, it was required in Jewish law to forgive at least three times. Did you know that? It was a Jewish standard. You only had to forgive somebody three times, and then you don't have to forgive them anymore. So now Peter's talking to Jesus in the New Testament. He says, how many times should I forgive a brother who sins against me? Seven times? So Peter's thinking, look how good I am. <laughs> I've 
given, I'm not only get, I'm doubling it and then adding one, and the number seven is significant in the Jewish tradition. What does the number seven mean? It means a number of completeness or wholeness. What day did, you, did God rest from creation? Seven. And so from that point on, seven has meant the time of completion and rest and wholeness. And so Peter says, how many times should I forget, forgive a brother who sins against me? Seven times, Jesus? And he's expecting Jesus to come up and say, oh, Peter, what a good kid you are. You're learning. Woo! But he doesn't do that. What does he do? He says, um, no, 70 times seven. 70 times seven is four. 490 times? Now imagine Peter doesn't have, a, doesn't have a phone or a notes pad or anything to carry around with him. He maybe has a stone tablet or parchment. Do you think he's going to carry a scroll around? <laughs> Every time this one person sins against him, he's going to, okay, that's uh, number 30. <laughs> See, Jesus is using hyperbole to say as many times as you need to. When you face a challenge of relationships, the imperative is to say, how many times does God have to forgive me for my shortcomings? And I should forgive because he first forgave me. See, the key to joy is not being held down by the weight of challenge and difficulty and hatred. The key to true joy is to press on, press in, and never give up. Never give up. Because if Jesus didn't forgive or give up on me, why would I want to forgive up on anybody else? Does he expect any less from me than he does himself? No, he's showing us the way to do it. I mean, this is why the gospel is so upside down to the world. Because the world says, if somebody does something to you, what are you supposed to do back to them? The exact same thing or worse. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Well, Brandon, that's biblical. I read that in there in Leviticus. You might have, yes, definitely. And that was a law that was a deterrent. But Jesus came and completed or fulfilled the old covenant and gave us a new covenant through his blood. And what did Jesus show us to do in the New Testament as he lived his life and walked these walks around all of these different communities in Jerusalem and Galilee, Judea, all of those areas? He went to the least of these. He helped those who were in dire circumstances, those that were being beat up by society. He let them see a picture of God that is of hope and of joy and of forgiveness and it was the leaders that were the ones who were oppressing them and Jesus calls the leaders out and he says you guys are heaping burdens on their backs and not lifting a finger to help them out stop it God doesn't want you to do that that's not what God is about he's about liberating people from bondage not causing more and I digress. I didn't even get to my notes there. Let me go on to point two. Sometimes the challenge of following God's plan seems overwhelming, but for the person who trusts God in the wilderness, there's joy in overcoming the impossible. Now, I read you Numbers chapter 13, but there's more to the story in Numbers chapter 14, which isn't going to be on the screen today, but listen as I read this. Numbers 14. Then the whole community began weeping out loud. They got the report from the tribes or the, the leaders that came in. There were only two of the spies, Caleb and Hosea or Joshua, that came back and said, we can do it. 
The other 10 said, no, we can't. And they began to spread all of this bad stuff in the community. And now the people in the community began to weep out loud and they cried all night. Their voices rose in this great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. And listen to what they say. If we had only died in Egypt, or maybe even here in the wilderness, fine, just kill us now, take us now, so we don't have to suffer torture under the hands of those in the promised land. They start to plead, why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones, they'll be carried off as plunder. Have you ever worried about your kids, your family? And you said, God, the challenge is too great. I don't want, I don't want to lose them. And you shouldn't want to lose them. But don't we fool ourselves into thinking we can completely protect everybody around us that means something to us? Some of you have suffered great loss from the loss of a loved one through a tragic circumstance. Some of you have lost children to disease, accidents. And a lot of you have probably asked the question, if I had only, or what if I had only done this, or if I hadn't have done that, or if, and you start to go down this path of self-destruction because you believe maybe you could have changed something. The challenge of loss is great, I understand that. But God hasn't called us to focus on loss and to focus on what we can't control. He's called us to be faithful. And one of the things that we struggle with is being faithful because we want to control every outcome of every circumstance in our lives. How many of you, just like me, are control freaks and you want to control everything in your life? Yeah, me. I want to control every single thing in my life. I want to, and my kids can tell you, and you want to try to control our lives too. Well, yeah, to a degree, because I'm your dad. So I'm just kidding. I'm not. I mean, I am. I mean, I, never mind. They are my children. All right. But how many of you try to control things only to find out your control is in vain because you realize that it's just a fiction that you think that you can control something? And one of the struggles we have in believing God or believing in God is because we say he is completely in control. Well, if he's completely in control, why do bad things happen to good people? How many good people do you know out there? Well, I'm good. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. See, there's the first fallacy. None of us are good. Even Jesus tells those who come to him and say, good teacher, could you help us with? And he says, there's no one but the Father who's good. <laughs> That's a slap in the face, isn't it? Right? Now, compared to other people, some of us may be better than others, so to speak, if you want to put it in that category. But how do you think God sees all of us? As sinners. Unless we receive the hope he has to offer through Jesus Christ. And once we make that decision to surrender our lives to Christ, 
He not only imparts hope and salvation, but he imparts joy unspeakable and full of glory into our lives to help us see that what we have gained is better than what we've lost. We've lost ourself, our selfish ways and everything else, and only to gain our life in return. It would have been hard to be one of those spies to come back after having seen all of that amazing land but also see the challenges in taking the land. You see, here's one of the things I know about God. He doesn't just give us things and expect us to do nothing about it. Do you understand that? Let me, let me explain that. God led them to the promised land. He showed them plagues. He parted the sea. But what did Moses have to do before God did the miracle of parting the Red Sea? God said, you've got to make the first step. And so Moses put the staff in the edge of the water, at the edge of the sea, and then what happens? God does his work. You see, God will lead us to the point to where we're facing the biggest obstacles and challenges in life, and he'll say, do you trust me? The person who has joy and looks at the obstacle as an opportunity says, yeah, I trust you. I've seen you lead me through other things in life. It hasn't always panned out the way I thought it might, but it's always panned out for good. It's been hard. It's been challenging. I've shed a lot of tears through the years, but I know you've walked with me through each and every step of the way, through every dark valley. The one who has Christ and who looks through eyes of joy and eyes of hope and the one who truly trusts God is the one who says, yeah, I'll take that first step. He will lead you so far. He will give you so much, but he won't allow you to have it until you're willing to take a step. Now, that sounds counterintuitive and counterproductive, but there's so many. You read, if you're reading through Scripture, how many times have you seen God promise something, but he's also expected something of us? I promise you this, I will always be faithful. I will be there with you. I won't forsake you or neglect you. But you need to do this. And God always fulfills his side of the agreement. And what do we see in the Old Testament of God's people? They're always messing it up. And God's led them this far, and he expects them to take a step. Now, when you get to Joshua, which is here after Deuteronomy, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, you get to Joshua, guess what? Moses disobeyed God in the wilderness during that 40 years. He wasn't able to lead the Israelites into the promised land, but Joshua or Hosea was given now the mantle of Moses and he was allowed to do that. Guess what? They face another body of water called the Jordan River and what has to happen for all of those millions of people to get across? Because the Jordan River in that section is wide, relatively deep, and it's rough. Guess what? What do you think has to happen? He leads them to the edge, and Joshua is now saying, all right, priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, step into the water. But see, God didn't part the water before they stepped in. They had to step in at least ankle deep at first. They had to get their feet wet. Did you catch that? And they got their feet wet. And it says there was a wall of water to the north and the rest of the Jordan River kept flowing down to the Dead Sea so that no water was left there until all of them went across on dry ground. 
Can you imagine the joy in seeing that? Can you imagine the joy in all of that? And we give them such a hard time because they saw some amazing miracles that they just couldn't pinpoint. Is How in the world did that happen? It could only be God. See, I think we neglect doing the hard things sometimes and miss out on the blessings and the miracles of God because we're afraid. Would you agree with me? I'm too scared. I'm too afraid. I can't do that. It's too big for me. Yeah, it may be, but you're going to miss out to so much that God may be calling you to. I started out in a small town in Kentucky called Bergen. You've heard me tell my story probably a number of times. Maybe you haven't. A small town of Bergen in Kentucky, south of Lexington by about a half an hour's drive. That town is still virtually the same size it was then, a population of about 1,200 people. I graduated from a high school, which was also an elementary school and a kindergarten and a preschool. We were all in one building. I graduated with 29 people. And no, it wasn't a private school. It wasn't a Christian school. It was a public school in Bergen, Kentucky. When I left Bergen to go to college in Florida in Lake Wales, which was quite a bit larger, I thought I had, I was, I was in culture shock. Lake Wales, Florida, they have at least 20,000 Woo, that's a big one. And I got scared, really scared, because I left a thousand miles from home and stayed there. And my mom bawling on the way back home because I was her only child and she's leaving me to fend for myself. But I was in the safety of a college. I mean, I mean this is, and I look back over the course of that time. My wife looks back over the course of her time and the places we've gone, the things we've done, the people we've seen, the experiences we've had. And I thank God he gave me a calling when I was in that small town in Bergen, Kentucky into the mission field of souls. Now yours may not be that calling the way it was mine, but if I didn't take that first step, step what would I have missed out on? What kind of blessings? And guess what? It has been a cakewalk since then. Ministry is so easy. I only work one day a week and I get vacation and all these perks and stuff like that. It's really sweet. And I lied to you, boldface, just now. Ministry is the toughest job I've ever done. And I've done a few other things prior to that that I'm not proud of. No, I'm just kidding. A few other things prior to that that were just hard. I've worked on assembly lines before. I've worked third shift before. I worked for Coca-Cola Bottling Company, driving one of those little white vans around with my little patch of Coca-Cola here on my, and I couldn't drink Pepsi while I was on the job. Nevertheless, I digress. <laughs> I've done a lot of those different things and I was miserable every time I was doing something that was in alignment with God's will for my life. And I suffered for nearly two years before I went to college out of high school, trying my hand at a multiple different things. I had a horrible resume. How long were you at this place? Uh, two weeks. How long were you at that place? Uh, a month. And uh, you know, so like I had no other option but to go to college because at least they would accept me on academic probation because my grades were horrible. So again, I'm really digressing, but here's, let me wrap this up. You're going to face challenges if you haven't already, and you have two choices. The one choice is to press into the challenge and to press through it because God is calling you maybe to it, or is to run away, or to camp out right where you are. And the sad fact is too many of us camp out in front of a challenge and don't move any further. 
or we allow the challenge to overcome us rather than actually overcoming the challenge. Does that make sense? The fear gets too great. We get, we get paralyzed like the 10 spies did. We can't do it. And so God decides to leave them out there for 40 years. <clears throat> Actually, in Numbers chapter 14, God says to Moses, I'm done with these people. I've been out here working with them for how many months? I've showed them everything I could show them to show them how powerful and how strong I am. And they're whining, frustrating people. You ever had anybody in your life like that? <laughs> Will you just shake your fists? That's the way God was with them. Do you think he's ever that way with us? I'm sure he's not. Just with the Israelites in the Old Testament. And he says to Moses, I'm done. I'm going to wipe them out. Stand back. And Moses, I'll make a great nation of you. My plan A is just not working. I'm done. And Moses reminds God, what will all the other nations think? They've seen your mighty hand of protection over your people. They've seen you lead these Israelites into this place on the edge of the promised land. You will be mocked. What will they think? If you're going to do that, just blot my name out of the book of life too. Would you be so bold? Because if you get frustrated with certain people and you know that they're not going to make it, would you be willing to say, God, if they can't go, then take my name out of the book of life too? Think of it from that perspective. Because Moses had to be just as frustrated, and actually he showed his frustration at times through those wilderness wanderings where he got so mad at times. The people that you get the most angry with, are you willing to sacrifice so that they can see the truth? I may not know what you're facing this morning. <laughs> Most of you, I don't know what you're facing this morning. Some of you, I know the challenges you face, but not all of you. But God knows your situation completely. He's a man, as Isaiah said, who's acquainted with your griefs and sorrows. Nothing evades his attention. He gets it. He knows it inside and out, and he has a plan to walk you through whatever you're going through. But he can't walk you through what you're going through if you don't willingly let him lead you. Do you understand that? You have a choice to make. You can be like the 10 spies, look at the challenge and say, no, not for me. Or you could be like Joshua and Caleb and say, all right, bring it on. Maybe you've gotten knocked down three or four times within the past month. And you say, is that all you got? <laughs> I know you get weak and you get tired and it feels like you're all alone. But do you believe God is with you and is willing to go through those knocks with you? Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. 
Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Maine is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.